Jerusalem. So today is going to be the last class, and I will tell you what we're going to do is we're going to travel through the rest of the Bible. <laughs> so we, we've been going, you know, okay, we're going through the book of Genesis, and now we got Exodus, and we did the book of Judges, I think even in two weeks. And, but what we're going to do is we're just going to try to wrap up in the Bible. I'm trying to think, of how do I teach this class in one lesson where we can get an entire picture, you know, of what's going on in the, what's going on in the Bible. And what I mean by what's going on in the Bible is we're going to start in first, um, actually, we're going to start in first Kings. First Kings is where we're going to go. First Kings all the way through is what we're going to try to do. Um, you will see that we're not going to focus a lot on the New Testament. We're going to try to focus on before we get to the New Testament. But then you'll see how the New Testament launches. But we're going to start at First Kings and go all the way through. So I'm thinking, okay, how do you go through First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and then go through each of the prophets that were connected to the kings? It's too much information. So what we're going to do is we're going to, and you'll see how we're doing this, we're going to um, try to view the empires that are taking place inside the land when the Bible was written. And that is what is in your notes. So let's just look at first, before we even get into the empires, as you will understand what I'm talking about, the first thing in our notes, um, and I'll, I'll do the first slide. Actually, we'll do the first slide before we go into um, uh, the handout that we have. The first slide, we have David, and we talked about David. And with David, you have the United Kingdom. When David became king, he became the king of Judah first, and then he was the king of Judah for seven years because Judah embraced him as a king. But then everybody else was just alongside of like, well, yeah, we know that he's been anointed. And so all of a sudden Israel um, came underneath David as well. So it would be the king of Israel, the king of Judah. They're all one, absolutely all one under David's leadership. Now, one thing that task that David wanted to do is David wanted to build a house for God, which is the temple, the Holy of Holies, where it's going to dwell. God said, you cannot because of the blood that you have shed. I will give it to your son, allow your son Solomon to do it. So we'll see what takes place in Solomon. We're going to you know, give his story fast because I don't want to go specifically on Solomon. We're going to go way beyond that. But Solomon, King Saul came in and, um, and that's Saul. That's Solomon. It should be Solomon. Whoa, that's my mistake. That's not King Saul. I'm sorry. King Saul is before David. Yeah, get rid of King. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's fast writing. <laughs> Solomon, Saul. So King Solomon came in as David's son. And then as he came in, he started to establish, uh, he built the temple and those things. But King Solomon was not like King David in the sense that he did not obey the law of God. You have 500 wives, you have 500 concubines, and you have a mess of wealth, and you have a mess of going your own direction. Um, He disobeyed, specifically disobeyed God. And as a result of him disobeying God, God said that I will snatch the kingdom out of you, but before my love of David, I will not snatch it away from you while you're king. But it is going to be divided with your sons. So now we move to this chart. You have a united kingdom under King David and under King Solomon, but then you have a divided kingdom with Judah and Israel. That is the divide. So Judah's going to have their own kings, and now Israel is going to have their own kings. And on this page right here, this gives you the perspective of all of it taking place. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, those are the two kings. Jeroboam was the king of Israel. Rehoboam was the king of, um, of Judah on two different on two different kingdoms. In fact, we can even show uh, that next map of the kingdom being broken. We'll show the next map. 
This is the king of Israel up above, and then this is the king of Judah down below. And as they are traveling through times, yes, they all have different kings. And then if you look at the right side, you will see the prophets that are taking place. All this is found in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. That's where you get all the stories. But then all the prophets that are mentioned in the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all those prophets, they're living amongst the kings and their works are going amongst the kings. Now you're going, well, this is really, really, really confusing. That's why we're going to talk about empires to figure this all out. But so this just gives you an entire picture of what's taking place. Two different kingdoms, king of Judah, king of Israel. They're both divided kingdoms. And all these are the kings that are taking place. And these are the prophets that are in the land during the time that they're taking place. Now, one thing about these kings is um, even the ones of Judah, not very many of them were good. In fact, the next slide will kind of show the red is bad kings, is corrupt kings. So if you look at Israel, all their kings, every one of their kings are what? <laughs> are, are, are corrupt. You look at Judah, which is the line of David, what do you see? You still see 50% of the kings even still corrupt you know, in that regard. But the one in green is the ones that were not corrupt. So I'll say that both nations um, struggled um, extremely. Both nations nations completely um, struggled. So as they're struggling, let's look at the perspective of what's taking place. Let's look at that second page in our notes. Hopefully you guys are following me. It's hard to give a whole picture of this, but we will go into it a little bit more. Um, This is the view of the Bible throughout the empires. I'll go back to the kings, but this is the view of the Bible throughout the empires. We've already talked about the Egyptian dynasty, and under the Egyptian dynasty, you'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And that means the Egyptians carried a lot of strength in the land, carried a lot of power in the land, carried a lot of goods in the land. It's, and they're the, one, they're the main power force throughout these books. And then you have uh, something else take place called the Assyrian Empire. And uh, look at the Assyrian Empire. Is, uh, Nineveh was the capital. It fell at 612 B.C. to the alliance of the Medes, Babylonians, and the Caesarians, uh, or Scythians. So the Assyrian um, Empire, Egypt was no longer the power source. The Assyrian Empire was now the power source. Let's, in fact, let's show the map. What I mean by Assyrian Empire being the power source is they owned, turn this on, they owned all this land. In fact, there were power over the entire piece of this land. Remember where Israel's at. Israel is right here. And the Assyrians um, ha- consumed most of this, well, consumed all of this land. And in the process of Israel being right there, I want to go back to the last slide, which is, I'll go back to, let's go back one more. Oh, I don't have it. Right there. This little piece right here, you have king of, Judah, uh, king of Israel, you have king of Judah, and all this outside is owned by the Assyrians. And I will tell you that the Assyrians were a complete pain to Israel and also to Judah. So let's just talk about the Assyrians a little bit before we get into it, because if you look at the Bible books that were written during the Assyrian Empire, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and then a lot of prophets during this empire, Amos, Joel, um, oh, I got Amos in there twice, Hosea, Obadiah, Zachari- uh, Zephaniah, Ma- uh, Micah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk. I can't say it if they're not in order, <laughs> but I twisted the order. Then you have the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, all written under this Assyrian empire. 
Now, talking about the Syrian Empire is going to put it in perspective of what these books are doing, what these books are saying. So let's talk about the Assyrians a little bit. The Syrians' chief occupation was complete war. They owned all that land. They're obsessed with wealth. They're obsessed with money, and they're obsessed with trading goods and conquering lands. In fact, every Assyrian king had no peace. They were wicked, wicked, wicked people. Uh, but they were only wicked. They were brutal. In fact, what they did, in fact, they found a lot of these tablets. They carved tablets of stone showing people what they're going to do to people if they capture them. Um, they show a torch in their enemies, so they're carving these tablets of stone. This is how we're going to torture our enemies. This is how we're going to treat our enemies. And what they'd do is they would skin people alive. They'd hang them on stakes. They'd chop their noses off. They would chop their ears off, chop their genitals off, and then they'd make artwork and send it to all the different nations and say, this is what we're going to do to you if you're our enemy. And they were just thirsty for it. So thirsty for it that, you know, if they skinned somebody, they'd use a human skin and they'd put that as the t- their tent, their, their, teep- uh, their teepee. That would be the skin around their tent. So they were sick and twisted people. And guess what nations lived in the middle of that? Israel and Judah. <laughs> Israel and Judah's like, oh my goodness, the Assyrians are out there as sick, twisted people that were out for human blood and did not desire peace, did not want peace. They were brutal. But they weren't only brutal to other nations, they were brutal to themselves as well. Women and children were slaves in Assyria. Sometimes they would strip them just to humiliate them. If they've done something wrong, they'll just take all their clothes off and say, well, you don't wear clothes you know, for the next couple of days as you walk around the streets and those things just for the purpose of ruining somebody if they didn't like them. If another person... If you kissed another person, well, that was against the Assyrian law. So, you know, if you kiss another person other than your wife, then they cut the lower lip off of your mouth to show everybody that you betrayed your wife. You know, so they got laws and then they have rules, but everything was just absolutely sick and disgusting as they not only tortured other nations, they tortured, they tortured people. Um, and if, if you committed adultery, it's like... Pfft, I mean, you're made it a eunuch. That's just what, that's what takes place. Um, that's the law. That was written into the law of the Constitution. If you murdered somebody or killed somebody, you would actually be handed over to the family members of the person that you killed, and then they get to do anything they want with you in the middle of the street. And the law was, this does not happen, therefore do as you please. So as the family members would actually take that person that murdered a part of their family and make a display a gross, sick display in front, of, in front of everybody. So it's a country that had a, a lot of PTSD, just in a sense that is like, ah, this is, this is the life that we live, a life of blood, a life of sickness, a life of gross, a, a life of, of money. Um, but it's also um, a country that so threatened other people that if they were going to invade, a lot of other people would just take a dagger and stick it into their hearts because they did not want to be captured by the Assyrians because the Assyrians were that sick. And look at the Assyrian Empire and look how long they ruled, 1100 BC to 612 BC. There was a lot of fear that was taking place. And then who had the fear? We have Israel and Judah sitting amongst all the Assyrians that, um, um, that is around them. So let's put these books into perspective. You have the kings, which we're not going to talk about the kings. We're going to focus on the prophets. Prophet Amos. What was Amos? Amos, what does he talk about? He calls the doom of captivity because of sins. 
What's interesting is you have all this sick empire that is around them, the Assyrians, and God says these words, do not turn away from me, and if you turn away from me, you will be punished. Keep my commands and you will be able to live. Well, Judah and Israel both, you can see, that they kept turning away from God. And so they'd send prophets, say, do not, do not, do not turn away from God. And then you get a powerful scripture in Isaiah 10 that says, Woe to the Assyrians, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. God's given strict warnings, strict warnings. Stay faithful to me. Do not turn to God. Woe to the Assyrians, because I will use them, and they will be my club of my wrath if you do not keep my commandments. If you do not turn to me. Still, Israel and Judah had problems turning to God. Hand of my wrath. Shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as dealt with Samaria and her idols? So this passage right here explains a lot of the, the, the minor prophets. Amos said, doom and captivity will come because of your sin. The Assyrians won't attack you, but they will if you continue to turn away from my mind because I will use them as a hand of my wrath. What is Joel about? Joel's about a plague of locusts, insinuated invasion because of their sin. You know, Assyrians were numbered by thousands upon thousands upon thousands. There's a plague of locusts just given Judah, given Israel, say, if you continue to turn away, these numbers will come in on you. Amos, oh, that's how I did Amos. Hosea is, even though you turn away from God, I will still love you, but do not turn away from God. That's what Hosea is talking about. But do you see the focus of these minor prophets? Obadiah condemns Edom. Now, this is a little different. Condemns Edom for the sin against Israel. So Edom had sin against Israel. Edom was Esau's offspring, and they're sinning against Israel. And this is a prophecy that took place that I will condemn Edom. But Micah is what? Doom and hope for Israel and Judah if they continue to turn away from God. In other words, it's going to come down. It's going to come down on you hard if you continue to turn away from God as you're surrounded by this empire. Jonah, what's the story of Jonah? What does he do? He confronts Nineveh. Well, understanding the Assyrians puts the book of Jonah in perspective. Why does it put the book of Jonah in perspective? Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Everything that is driving that empire um, of sickness, of garbage, of brutality, of torture, is all taking place in regards to Nineveh. Nineveh was the place that was the ugly, absolute, sick piece that Jonah has then given instructions. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to minister to those wild animals. Well, what does Jonah say? Jonah 1, 3 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Emmetal. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Ah, the Assyrians? Nineveh? And preach against it. This is a crazy, crazy mission with a radical God given the instructions. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But what did Jonah do? Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed to Tarshish. Here's a, a little map in regards to Jonah's call. You see Nineveh, there's, there's Joppa, so that's where jo- um, Jonah's at. You just go crowd up to Nineveh because they own the um, 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 Mesopotamia. <laughs> Sorry, that word didn't come to Where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers come together. That member, we talked about that before. All you have to do is go up to Nineveh, and that's where I want to preach the gospel. Jonah says, no way. It's not going to happen, and I'm going to go as far as I possibly can away. 
2,500 miles to Tarshish and only 550 miles to Nineveh. Jonah wanted to be forgotten about. Why? Because he despised the Assyrians and he did not want to go and give the gospel to the Assyrians. It was a radical call. So think of the weight that was on Jonah. And I'm not justifying Jonah's behavior, (laughs) but think of the weight that was on Jonah. Jonah 3.10 says, when God saw that they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now this is the end of the book of Jonah, because we know the story of Jonah. Jonah goes across the Mediterranean, and as he's going across the Mediterranean, a big storm takes place, and as a big storm takes place, somebody, God is mad at somebody, and it found out that they're mad at Jonah. Jonah goes into the sea. He gets swallowed by a big fish. He gets coughed back up. And now Jonah has a listening ear. <laughs> Go to Nineveh. So what does he do? He then goes to Nineveh. And then what does he do? He preaches the gospel and is brutally murdered? No. He preaches the gospel. And the Assyrians that are brutally sick turn and confess before God. But look at Jonah's perspective. There is a a lot of history that takes place with Jonah because he's lived amongst the Assyrians and he's seen the work against their country and against his family. So there's anger that comes in Jonah. says, why would you save them as they have put so much pain on my family's life and and so much pain on my country's life? Jonah was mad. But what was he mad about? Jonah 4 says, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry because they turned to God, not away from God, they turned to God. But he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I still is at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding to love, and God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Now, do you understand Jonah? Jonah lived amongst the Assyrians and saw the pain, saw the destruction, and he wanted God's wrath to go on to them. Instead, they turned to God, and he was, just kill me. He was telling God, just kill me, because God, you are way too merciful, and it drives me absolutely crazy that you would not wipe them out for what they did. But the story of Jonah is a display of God's mercy. So then what continues? 150 years, I will tell you that the Syrians, they changed. Um, not, they didn't change for 150 years. They changed for a time. But as they changed for a time, they started going back to their evil ways. But the time of Jonah was a great revival for the Assyrians in regards to you're having their empire, but the brutality stopped. The confession started. Turning to God happened. And after time, of course, through different kings, they, of course, went back into their negative ways. Nahum, going back to talking about God's people, Nahum is telling God's people, do not despair, God will judge Nineveh. In other words, Nahum's just a book that sees Jonah. Jonah goes over there, and he preaches the gospel. They come converts, and then all of a sudden, they turn in time, after they get different kings, and they start rebelling again, and then Nahum says, okay, God's done with Jonah, or God, God's done with Nineveh. I'm, he's going to bring judgment on it. So that's what the book of Nahum is about. Habakkuk, what's the book of Habakkuk about? God's people will suffer at the hands of their enemies because of their sins. Uh, that's what the entire prophecy of Habakkuk. I'm going to give you guys news. At the hand of your sins, you guys are going to suffer, and you're going to suffer by somebody coming in and somebody invading you and somebody taking 
over your land. And the major prophets, Isaiah, is judgment, salvation of Israel, salvation for individuals, and salvation for the future. In fact, that whole book can be broken in those. Judgment is saying people are going to come in and kill you. People, Assyrians, it's not the Assyrians, they'll be Babylonians. The Assyrians will come and take you over. Their judgment is going to take place. But I will give salvation to Israel. And inside the book of Isaiah, you see some beautiful messages of who? Of Jesus' coming, pushing towards Jesus' coming. And then you see the salvation of individuals. You see the center of Isaiah. You see Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 describes about Jesus' death. I came to do what? And I was slaughtered for what? For what purpose? To save my people. And then the last part of Isaiah is the salvation of the future. Jeremiah was in the mix of all of this. And the reason why Jeremiah was in the mix of all of this is because, yes, people are going to be invaded because of their sins. Syria is going to be invade, and Assyria, I'll just say Assyria is going to invade. I'll, I'll change it here in a second. But Assyria is going to invade, and Jeremiah says, This is not good. It's going to happen. And it is the light. He's expressing the life and the prophecy through the book of Jeremiah as this invasion starts to take place. I want you guys to go back and look at this. And as we're looking at this, you will see the Hosea, this is on the right side, the king of Israel, is the last king. And the last king of Israel was 732 B.C. God had enough of Israel, and the Assyrians came and did what? They wiped them out. They took, they took, they took Israel out. Remember, you have Israel at the top, Judah's at the bottom, Israel was completely and entirely wiped out, removed, and no longer existed. Then Assyrians did what? They came down to Jerusalem. And if you tackle Jerusalem, you get Judah. And what do you happens when they showed up at Jerusalem? King Hezekiah looked at them and started to pray to God. And everybody else was like, we just got to surrender, kill ourselves. What are we going to do? We're surrounded Hezekiah, the strongest king, according to the Bible, the strongest king in the time, says, we will remain faithful. And the next morning, what? Hundreds of thousands woke up dead of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians did not conquer Judah. They continued to last. But the Assyrians were then conquered. So you still have Israel or Judah that's still a kingdom. The Assyrians were then conquered by the Babylonians. So now let's look at the Babylonian Empire. So in the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonians gained strength. Let's just read it. Napoleon, I'm sorry about the names, Nebuchadnezzar's father, established the Neo-Babylonian Empire 625 B.C. when he revolted against Assyria at the Battle of Karamish. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar defeated the alliance of Egypt and Assyria, and Babylonian became the undisputable dominant power in the world. So let's look at the next slide and this is the Babylonian Empire here. So they wiped out the entire Syrian Empire, and this is where their boundaries stopped right here. They went further into the Arabian Desert, but they didn't go all the way into Egypt. The Babylonian Empire then took out the Syrian Empire. Well, who still exists? Judah. <laughs> Judah's the only one that exists. Does Israel exist? No, Israel's already wasted. Israel has already been killed, wiped out. Judah was the only one that exists in the Babylonian Empire. So let's ask the question, or actually let's not ask the question, let's just look back into our notes again. Hopefully this is all making sense. It's really hard to explain because there's so much that's, that's taken place. The Babylonian Empire 
takes, um, um, takes charge after King Josiah. So 625, so it's shortly after King Josiah happened. But then you had four different kings that were there under um, um, four different kings that were in Judah. And as these four kings were in Judah, I will tell you that Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz um, was um, uh, still a king of Judah, but Jehoiakim and Jehoashin was no longer necessarily the king of Judah. They were appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. It says, you can continue leading Judah if you do what I tell you to do. So Jehoiakim and Jehoashin were still kings, and they were evil kings, told by Nebuchadnezzar, you keep doing what you're supposed to do in my regard, and then I will let you, I will let you live. And so they were still under the, the rule of Nebuchadnezzar during that time. And then Zedekiah became king. And as Zedekiah became king, I will tell you that he was another evil king. And he was tempted to do exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar said. But who was speaking against it? The prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, don't listen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to God. He is your king. And therefore, Zedekiah stood up against King Nebuchadnezzar. And at that time, I will tell you that King Nebuchadnezzar came and he just wiped them all out. He just completely destroyed Judah and he took the Jews into captivity, took them into prison. So there was no longer Judah. He took all of their prisoners back up um, into Babylon. So Babylon literally owned it all. So in this time, three books of the Bible were written. Ezekiel, Lamentations, and Daniel. Remember where they were? They were in exile, pulled out of their land. Ezekiel says, through defeat, this is what the book of Ezekiel is about, through the defeat and despair of God's sovereignty, God can be worshipped anywhere. God's kingdom will come survive exile, is, is what the book of Ezekiel is talking about. Lamentations is a lament for the destruction of Jerusalem. It's just a, 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 a book of grieving, a book of death, a book of sorrow, because Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. And then Daniel. What's the book of Daniel about? Daniel is his story inside of exile. And uh, we'll see his story inside of exile is that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, after they, he conquered Judah, he took some people that were from Judah and he wanted to train them to be Babylonians. So he took very, very wise people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and now King Nebuchadnezzar has put them close to him to train them for the purpose of being Babylonians. And Daniel tells that story, but Daniel tells so much more than that story. Daniel starts to prophesy different visions that take place, and I will tell you that a lot of prophecy starts to take place of regards what is going to happen with Judah, and one of the prophecies is that there will be coming back down. What's going to happen when the Antichrist comes way to the future? A lot of prophecies are there. But these three books were written while they were in exile. And then the Babylonian Empire comes to destruction in 539. And now we have, what, the Persian Empire that comes out. So let's see what the Persian Empire would be. The, there it is. So here's the Persian Empire. You'll see that they went... They went more east than even, well, actually, they carried the whole, they carried the whole line right here uh, along the Mediterranean. Um, but as the Persian Empire came out, they conquered all the Babylonians. 
They again took Mesopotamia, because remember Mesopotamia is rich. You got the Euphrates and you got the Tigris rivers that carry a lot of goods. You have also Egypt down here with the Nile River that carries a lot. So they completely wiped out this whole area and then, and then controlled this area. But what the Persians did is the Persians let the Israelites come back to Judah. Let the Israelites come back to Israel. And then what's taken place during the Persian Empire is you have a couple more books that were written, and you can look in your notes these books that were written. Well, what's the book of Ezra about? Ezra is about life under the Persian Empire. They were let back into Judah, let back into Jerusalem, and then what took place? Persians allowed Judah to return to Jerusalem, and Zerubbabel builds the temple. If they're going to go back into Jerusalem, remember the temple was destroyed. I didn't say that. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. Zerubbabel is going to build the temple. And I will tell you, it's not nearly as beautiful as the temple that was built by King Solomon, but it was just at least a structure that says we worship God. So there's a great revival that takes place with the rebuilding of the temple, which is more of a shack compared to Solomon's temple. But that's what the book of Ezra is about. And you'll also see other things that take place in Ezra is you will see that you know, God's people comes down to Jerusalem. As God's people come down to Jerusalem, he gives them instructions, do not intermarry with everybody. I'm trying to keep my nation pure. And everybody starts to marry all these different people. Then God comes back later and says, split all the wives because we're, trying, we're building a nation. You know, it's working through the Old Testament. Then you have Haggai. What is it about? Glorifying God and the rebuilding of the temple inside of opposition. So that's what the prophecy is about. Hey, this is glorify God in the process of the building. Nehemiah, well, what's the book of Nehemiah about? Remember what they're doing. They're building the temple, but as they're building the temple, they still have lots of opponents on the outside that are giving them problems. Nehemiah, who is in the north, comes to the south for the purpose of building a wall so God's people can be taken care of. Zechariah, what is it about? God's Use prophets to teach, warn and correct. People still do not listen. So Zechariah is still making a statement, but he's making a statement during the Persian Empire. And then Malachi pronounced that God's justice and the promise of the coming of the Messiah. So they're barely staying afloat is what's really taking place as they are back in the country of Judah. And through this prophecy, let's look at Malachi, and this is the end of the Old Testament. See, I will send you the prophet of Elijah. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to the hearts of their children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. What does he say? He says, there is going to be somebody, a prophet, Elijah. He will return. And I don't have the passage in there, but then what does Matthew talk about? Who's John the Baptist? He is the prophet of Messiah. That, uh, pro- oh, here it is right here. Matthew 11, 11 says, I tell you the truth, among those born of a woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So God was quiet for 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist opens his mouth. Well, when he opens his mouth saying, and this is Jesus' words, but saying that I am coming to prepare the way of the Messiah, Well, there's been complete quiet for the last 400 years from any sort of prophet. But at the end of the Old Testament, I promise this, John the Baptist comes and says, I'm going to fulfill that promise. But what happens in the middle of the Bible? You know, what takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Um, The answer is not nothing. um, Because God is setting this up for the coming of the Messiah. So a lot of things take place. 
And let's just look at the Greek empire. Number one is that the Persian empire got wiped out and the Greek led by Alexander the Great comes in. And where does he come in? We'll show the, Greek em- the Greece empire. Again, absolutely strong, powerful, wiped out. This is the Greece empire that comes in. The Persians are gone. The Babylonians have been gone a long time ago. The Assyrians have been gone a long time ago. And now we have the Greek empire. And this all took place in between the testaments. And in between the testaments, we don't have a Bible, do we? But the Catholics do. And what they have is they have the Apocrypha of the writings that took place when the Greek empire came. But we do not believe, personally we do not believe, Baptists do not believe, I do not believe, that it is the canon of Scripture. But yet they do, and they hold it to the canon of Scripture. So I can read the Maccabee books and you can get the history, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, 3rd Maccabees, you can see the history of the war there, but we do not see, um, but I believe it's not Scripture. But what is interesting is that there is prophecies that take place for this period of time, and they're found in the book of Daniel. Daniel 8, 20 says this, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. They are powerful, they are strong, but there is a shaggy goat that represents the king of Greece. Who is that? Daniel 8, the goat became very great. This is talking about Alexander the Great. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in it took place, fourth, uh, place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. And then Daniel eleven four. after he has appeared, the empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to the descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given away. So you see what Daniel is doing. He's explaining everything that's taking place and even explains what's going to take place before it takes place in between the Testaments. Speaking of Alexander the Great, bringing the Hellenistic view into the empire and as, the Greeks, as, Greece, takes, as Greece takes over and builds their empire. So you have the Old Testament, so you even prophesies in the middle. And there's some other things that do happen in the middle. And I will tell you that there's, I mean, I'm trying to go fast with all this information. Hopefully you guys are following me. You got the Maccabean Wars, you have different things that take place, but the other piece that takes place that uh, if you go to Israel you'll see is the Herodian dynasty. So what happens is that you do have Israel take Israel there, the Greece Empire, then you have the Maccabean Wars, and then you have Rome that starts to get connected with Judah slash Israel, you know, as the, and, and put things together. The Herodian Empire is King Herod is put in there by the Roman government. And as King Herod is put in there, he has two instructions. Collect taxes and keep peace. And so the Herodian, Herod the Great, walks in there. And as he walks in there, I will tell you uh, what he does is uh, he's not a man of war, but he's a man of prestige, a man of power, and he starts to build himself a kingdom. If he's got to keep peace, what's the first thing he has to do with the Jews? got to do something to the temple. Remember what took place? The temple was destroyed when Solomon, Zerubbabel came and he built the temple, but it's a shaggy looking temple. King Herod walked in and says, we got to get a lot better temple than this. So what did he do? He rebuilt the temple to its great glory. He's trying to impress Rome and he's trying to take care of the Jews because he's got to get taxes and he's got to maintain peace. So what does he do? He builds this old temple. Here, let's show some pictures. 
He builds this temple, and all of a sudden, Rome is what? Happy with him. And the reason why Rome is happy with him, because the Jews are happy with him. And the reason why the Jews are happy with him, because he's very smart. I'll give the Jews what they want. So he built this great temple for the Jews. But he did not stop there. He built some other artifacts as well. Let's just continue to go through. Here's the temple right here. The temple mount that King Herod built for the Jews, remember he's appointed by Rome, for the Jews still exists even today. You can see the temple mount that is around. And this is, what is, this is actually a modern picture of Israel today. So did King Solomon build the temple? He built the temple, but when we go over there, this is not the temple. Let's go back one more. It's not the temple that King Solomon built. It's actually the temple that King Herod built to make the Jews happy. So then the next one, he did not only do that, he built Caesarea, which is a port to who? A port to Rome would be in the next picture. This is Caesarea. He brought the, um, the Roman um, games. He brought the Roman recreation. He brought the gladiators down. And he brought an open seaport. And that open seaport allowed Israel to get their wealth, to get their power. And so this is the seaport they get. If you can see that it's built mostly even underground, so it's an actually an amazing piece of work that, uh, that he has built. And if you go over there, you can see that specifically again today. But what's he doing? He's trying to make the Jews happy, and he's trying to appease the Romans. I will give the Romans taxes, and I will make the Jews happy because they'll pay taxes. So he's starting to build these things, but he's doing it for his glory and his glory alone. And then the next one, Herod the Great went to Masada, and he built a huge palace at Masada. Remember, that is the stronghold of David. But, you know, King Herod says, well, I'm going to make a, you know, an artifact of the stronghold of David where I can take my refuge. So he built a huge kingdom on top of, on top of Masada. So the Herodian, King Herod, literally set everything up in its power before the coming of the Messiah. But then all of a sudden, King Herod died. And when King Herod died, um, I will tell you that he was a paranoid person. And what I mean by a paranoid person, he's always worried about his wife cheating him, cheating on him. And I tell you that he loved his wife with an obsession that was just completely consumed, and that's why he was so scared about her cheating on him. So since he loved her so much, he killed her because he was scared of him cheating on him. But since he loved her so much, he kept her. And what he did is he put her body in honey, and so what happens is he would consistently look at his wife and honey and enjoy her, but she also knows he won't cheat on him. I'm just telling you, this guy's a sick, twisted person. But that's who King Herod was. He was obsessed with power. He was obsessed with glory. But he carried a fear that was so deep that somebody's going to kill him. Somebody is going to slaughter him. And five days before he died, he had an heir, which is his son. And what did he do to his son? He killed him. <laughs> I don't want you to take my kingdom. Well, then who's going to take his kingdom? So he's not thinking, but he's so obsessed with power, with glory, and so messed up in his mind as he's building his own kingdom that you can see the destruction he's just destroying from the inside out. So he kills the heir, and when he kills the heir, Rome's got to figure out, well, who are we going to put in charge? <laughs> you can't, I mean, King Herod was the king. All of a sudden, he kills the heir. Well, Rome does three different things. He puts Herod Philip, Herod Achilles, and, and then... And then he also put Herod Antipas in charge. And then you'll see, a, you'll see a, a, a map. I think you'll see a map. No, that's not that one. Let's go one more. 
Actually, I'll just talk about this one really fast. This is the Roman Empire that's going to take place. Roman's starting to control a lot of that, and you can see Israel that is there. But the next slide, I think there's a next slide. Maybe there's not a next slide. Oh, there's not, there's not a next slide. Okay, so you have, um, you have Herod Philip, Herod Achilles, and then Herod Antipas. Rome says, we'll put those three kings in charge. Is that a good idea? <laughs> Uh, they put those three kings in charge, and they put those three kings in charge, then they split the country. And I'll tell you that King Archelaus, which is in king over Judah, he, he only lasted five years uh, before he died. So you have one king that is not even king over Jerusalem anymore, and you have the temple, you have everything that's taken place, and then you have people that are, are moving in, and there's no leadership around the temple. So what does Rome do? They put down in proculators. And proculators is a Roman government that says, Pay taxes and keep the peace, and if you don't, I'll kill you. So it's not a king necessarily. It's proculators that are controlling the land with power and death, and you do not mess with the proculators because they will keep peace in the land. Who's a proculator that we know? Pilate. Pilate is a proculator that we know. Why did he crucify Jesus? Ah, I want peace. What's his job? His job is to have peace and pay taxes. Jesus messed that thing up. In fact, what happens right now is that you have Jerusalem with the temple. This is right before we're walking into Jesus. You have Jerusalem with the temple. You still have a Herodian dynasties that are in charge of the country of Israel. You have the Sadducees that have strength and power over Israel. You have the Pharisees that have strength and power over Israel. You have the scribes that have strength and power over Israel. And then you have the proculators that have strength and power over Israel. And they all disagreed. So think about this. Jesus is going to walk onto the scene. And when Jesus walks on the scene, he's walking into a country with extreme power that is divided in five different ways. And as he's walking into this country that's divided in three different ways, I will tell you there's only one thing that they agreed on. And one thing that they can sit in a room and talk about. One thing that they can say, okay, we all agree. And do you know what that one thing they agreed on? Is kill Jesus. That's it. Kill Jesus. If we, can talk about Je- if we can talk about killing Jesus, we can agree. But nothing else that we can possibly agree on. So here, the Son of Man comes. Jesus comes with the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the proculators all there. And as he walks in, he walks in with what? He walks in with a power of God. And as he walks in with the power of God, it was a threat to every single one of these people that were trying to have power, that we're trying to have strength in the country of Israel. And as that response, we see Jesus was killed on the cross, but he rose again. And then what took place, the church grew and expand after the resurrection of Jesus. And as they grew and expanded, what happens? We see persecution, 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 because they killed the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that walked into their messed up system. And then the Christians start, what, spreading this gospel of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the only thing they can do in this process is to kill them and annihilate them. So that's what you see through the book of Acts. That's what you see through the gospels. Jesus walking in after the Herodian dynasty, Israel being a mess with the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the proculators. And then you see the center that Jesus died, Jesus rose, and then the church planted with the king of kings and lord of lords so now the country of israel was completely out of control according to who according to rome (laughs) 
It was completely and entirely out of control. Why? Because Jesus came, Jesus died, and the church is aggressively, aggressively moving. So what does Rome do? Rome comes down and does what? And destroys the temple, completely annihilates the temple. In fact, we'll go back to the Roman Empire. Completely wipes out everything. Rome takes complete dominance. But did he wipe out God? Did he wipe out Jesus? Did he wipe out the message? He destroyed Rome destroyed what? They destroyed Masada. They destroyed Caesarea. They destroyed everything that Herod built. And they destroyed the temple. But is God wiped off the face of the earth? Rome tried to wipe him off the face of the earth. But is he wiped off the face of the earth? Absolutely not, because he switched directions. A temple not made in stone, but the temple is made into the human heart. And when the temple is made into a human heart, in 1663 B.C., when Rome came and destroyed the temple... God relocated the temple. Jesus relocated the temple. They said Christ will now live specifically in us. And so what happens is this message then has gone clear throughout the entire world. You see what's happening is the Old Testament, there was a specific location to worship God, to praise God, and it was at the, it was at the temple. And there's always the Assyrian empires behind it. There was the Babylonian empires, there were the Persian empires, there the Roman empires in the center of all of this. But after that whole mess is taken place, Christ comes and changes it and says, the temple now comes in man, so I can travel to Asia, I can travel to America, I can travel absolutely anywhere because the temple no longer exists in that location on this world. And so if you're wrap up the story in Israel. That's about the smoothest I can do it <laughs> in the amount of time that we have. And you probably go, oh, that was not very smooth. But just watch the hand of Israel in the Old Testament. And as you watch the hand of Israel in the Old Testament, you can understand why the books were written. But through understanding why the books are written, you can have a revelation of how God deals with his people, how God works with his people back then, and how God works with his people now. So as a church, we go to Israel every three years. I will tell you what we get to see. We get to see beautiful artifacts. We get to see beautiful history. We get to see absolutely amazing things where God literally walked, Jesus walked, and took place. But I will tell you that that is just that one location, and that location is now switched in regards to God's spirit, in regards to God's power. It is fun to go to Israel. It is a blessing to go to Israel. But you can stay in America and worship God just as much as you can. Go to the temple inside the Holy of Holies and see God there because of what Christ has done to see what Jesus has done.